0: You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. officially into the Christmas season, or uh, the liturgical language would say the Advent season, if you're like me, then it may be that this time of year feels kind of more frenzied and hectic to you. Um, and People talk a lot about rest and peace, and, and maybe you feel a little bit ramped up. One of our goals um, during this time of year at King's Cross is not to fill your calendar with stuff to do or to ask you to do a bunch of extra stuff, but to to try to create opportunities and moments where you can receive uh, and and where you can slow down a little bit and and enjoy with your family um, some of the things that are going on. We have put some of these seat drops um, in front of you over the last few weeks, and they're all out on the tables right when you exit the sanctuary. There's a table there in between the doors. Um, This one is a little holiday schedule. It just tells you the major days that we have things going on there. And so if you don't already have one of these, I'd encourage you to grab it, um, maybe throw it up on the refrigerator, put it in your phone. That's the way I do it because I can't keep track of anything unless it's in my phone. Um, And so there's some opportunities there that I hope you're aware of. This one um, is something that we're doing for the first time. And I'll be honest, I've never even heard of a church doing it. Um, It's a Christmas camp that is three days um, over Christmas, the 19th, 20th, and 21st of December, um, in just a brief little window from 9 to 1130 in the mornings for kids ages 4K to 4th grade. Um, And so it's a a two-and-a-half-hour window. Three days right before Christmas where you can get your kids out of the house. Um, By that time, you probably want them out of the house Uh, and they can get engaged in some things. We already have 58 kids signed up for this. That's great. And so um, the deadline to register is December 10th. So uh, parents, um, jump on that, invite. I had a friend of mine this week who said, is it okay if I share this with like, um, I have some moms that are on a text thread. I'm, I'm like, yeah, that's why, we're, that's, um, that's why we're doing it. So I think it's an awesome idea that Megan had um, that is cranked up. And also we could probably use maybe another 10 or so volunteers. Um, our guess is what we're planning for is 100 kids. And so I think that's probably where we'll wind up. Um, And so if you have some time in the week before Christmas and and you um, maybe want to spend it with little ones, um, helping them learn the truths about Christmas um, and enjoying one another, maybe you could come talk to Megan about that. And the last one is this little Christmas devotional. And uh, Josh put this together. Um, There is uh, devotional readings for each week during the Advent season on the back. And they're really designed to do two things. They're designed to prepare your hearts for this time. So if you have been reading along this past week, um, Josh has organized those readings to get you ready for the sermon this morning. But it's, they're also designed to prepare you for what's coming in 2023. So in 2023, we're going to preach through the entire Bible. It's in a series called The Story. It's gonna be a 52 week long series. January 1st and December 31st are Sundays. And so we're going to start literally on the first day of the year and end literally on the last day of the year. And I think it's going to be fun. There's some chapters built into it, so it's not going to seem like one big sermon series. It'll seem like 10, kind of, which is actually more than what we normally do. And there's going to be a customized reading plan along with that for the whole year. Um, the community group activity is going to be organized around that. Uh, I think that it is going to be... Um, Kind of one of those signposts in the life of a church, um, and perhaps for some of you who really, um, if you're kind of honest and and willing to be truthful in church, would say maybe you're not as familiar with the overall story of the Bible, maybe parts and pieces of it, but the overarching story maybe is something that has been a little lost to you over the years. And so um, I think it's going to be a really really awesome series. We're we're really looking forward to it and working on it for months, and um, so this reading plan not only will get you ready for Christmas, um, but it is going to flow seamlessly kind of right into 2023. So I hope you'll take advantage of those um, and grab them on your way out if you don't already have them uh, maybe stuck in your Bible as bookmarks or or up on your fridge. But for this morning, we are kicking off the Christmas series, um, which is called Creatively Christmas Carols, because each week we're going to look at a Christmas carol. Um, And so we had to dig deep into our creativity uh, bag to come up with that one. But what we're going to do is consider not the lyrics to the carol themselves, but the scriptural truths that underlie them. Um, And so to tell you a little bit more about maybe some songs that you've been singing um, as a child that we've been singing as the church for generations. This morning, that carol is one of the oldest in the English language. It's God rest ye merry gentlemen. The song is so old that we don't know who wrote it. As best as we can tell, we think it dates to the 16th century. So that's like the 1500s. But it's still popular. In our day, it's been recorded by everybody from Nat King Cole to Mannheim Steamroller, which is a blast of the past for some of you, um, to 98 Degrees, which Undou- exactly that, right? It had to be everyone's reaction to the cringiest version of that song ever put out. Um, but it, it's still popular 500 years later. The phrase rest ye Mary," or God rest ye Mary," was still part of the popular vernacular um, in England into the 17th century. And we know that because it appears in at least six of Shakespeare's plays, and in a play written by Abraham Cowley. Shakespeare is more at the beginning of the century. Cowley is more at the end, and so that that phrase remained popular. The earliest printed version of the carol that we have is from 1760. The two most popular tunes, so the melodies that went along with it, were composed in the early 1800s. And to get to a place where you could find a printed version of what you and I would recognize fully as the God rest you Mary gentlemen that we're used to hearing, that dates to about 1833, although it had eight stanzas to it, not the more popular four now that, that we're used to singing. And the reason that I wanted to start with this one is because I'm intrigued by how often the title itself is misunderstood. So when I was growing up and I would read or sing this song, what I heard was, God rest ye, merry gentlemen, right? So because the content of my public school education in Kentucky didn't include archaic English idioms, um, what I heard was, may God give peace and rest and calm to all you happy guys, like that, that's what I heard, but that's not the phrasing. The phrasing is, God rest ye Mary, gentlemen. And the two words that kind of trip up our modern ears there are rest and merry. It was rest to us sounds like the nap I took yesterday during the World Cup, which was refreshing. Right? But that's not what it means. Rest back then in archaic English meant to keep or to make. God, keep you, or God, make you. And Mary is much stronger than like happy-go-lucky, right? Or like, you know, just bubbly. It's not that. It means something closer to like an abiding peace and joy, and sometimes if you go on the internet and, or you read around or you're reading an article and they'll say, well, Mary back then meant something like mighty or strong. And that could be true in certain characteristics. But the chorus is tidings of comfort and joy, tidings of comfort and joy. And so we know in context that the way that the songwriter meant it um, was something more like, may God grant to you and keep you in and abiding peace and joy. Now, I didn't hear that growing up, but, but that's that's what the song's after. May God make you peaceful and joyful. May me keep you that way by his power. And so the question for us is, well, what is it about Christmas that would do that for us, that, that would make us and keep us peaceful and, and joyful? What biblical truths are we singing about in this 500-year-old Christmas carol that if you understood them, if you believed them, would comfort your soul in a world that sometimes seems anything but peaceful and joyful? I think that's the question. Let me give you two answers and an application. Two answers to that question and then an application of it. So the first answer is that you can have peace and joy because Jesus came to save. It's possible for you to have peace and joy in your life because Jesus came to save. The first verse of the carol says this. God rest you, Mary, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. It's hard not to sing it. Right? For Jesus Christ our Savior. For Jesus Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. God rest you, Mary. For Jesus was born. Why? To save us all from Satan's power. When we were gone astray, the opening verses of the New Testament, Matthew records the following in Matthew 1, verses 18 to 21. He writes, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. says of himself in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the purpose of the coming of Jesus, to save people from the consequences of their sin, namely spiritual death and eternal separation from God. And that sin is not just a mistake. It's not just a slip-up. You know, it's it, it's not just well I tried and things didn't go quite right. That sin, yours and mine, is satanic, literally. The Apostle John in First John three eight writes this: Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, and that appearing is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's His birth. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is nothing less than the official, public, earthly declaration of a cosmic war. It's that war, according to Colossians 2.15, that was won on the cross. There, Paul says, that on the cross, God the Father disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he means demonic spirits. That's the phrasing there that he's using. God the Father has disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Because of that victory, because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, all of those who repent of their sin and place their faith in him are, according to the scriptures, kept from the evil one. That's John 17, 15. They have overcome the evil one. That's 1 John two thirteen. They are not touched by the evil one, 1 John five eighteen. They will crush Satan under their feet, Romans sixteen twenty. And because, according to 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, The Lord is faithful, He will establish them and guard them against the evil one. This is not a one off idea in the New Testament. This is not some spooky thing made up years down the road to try to scare people into adhering to the church. This is a consistent idea throughout the scriptures that He was born to save us from the power of Satan. He will, in archaic English, rest you Mary, ladies and gentlemen. It's why he came, because he was born to save us from Satan's power, even when we were gone astray. Or to use the biblical language of Romans 5.8, he showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can have peace and joy. Real, deep, abiding, life-changing, perspective-altering, eternity-defining peace and joy because Jesus came to save you from the power of the evil one. Whose scripture says is a liar and the father of lies, John eight forty four, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. First Peter five eight, who comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said in John ten ten, who hates you. Understand in your family, in our church, and what we're doing here this morning. But who, according to Revelation 20, 10, will one day be thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur and be tormented day and night forever and ever? This is what's happening at Christmas. And I know that we we calm it down, right? But it's not a calm. That baby that's born in a manger... His name is Jesus because he came to save. He is the long-awaited warrior king of the house and lineage of David promised in 2 Samuel 7. He is the commander of the Lord's army who appears outside the walls of Jericho in Joshua 5. He is the one who comes to rule with a rod of iron whose robe is spattered in the blood of his enemies astride a white horse in Revelation 19. That's who the baby in the manger is. If you're a Christian, or if you would become a Christian, this is what Christmas ushers in for you. This is who Christmas ushers in for you. Friends, the gospel is not that if you'll try really hard, if you'll be really good, if you'll be really generous, if you'll if you'll overcome enough, if you'll claim victory enough, if you will deny yourself enough, if you will study the Bible enough, if you, if you, if you, if you, that is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus did. And because he did, God will make you peaceful by his grace through your faith. Because Jesus did, God will give you joy by his grace through your faith. Because Jesus did, you can have peace and joy. That's the gospel. That is worth singing about. That's why we've been singing that song for 500 years. It's a song worth singing for 500,000 more. Because it's rehearsing these biblical truths. And it comes out of the gate strong. Man, can God just make you peaceful and joyful? Because you know that there's a Savior who's been born to destroy Satan. He came to save. The second answer to how it is that you can have peace and joy Is because Jesus is able to save. It's one thing to come to save. It's another thing to be able to save. Amen? The second verse of the carol says this. From God our heavenly Father a blessed angel came. And unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same. How that in Bethlehem was born. The Son of God. By name. It is directly out of Luke 2. Verses 8 to 14, they say this. In the same region, there were shepherds out in a field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. You've heard me say this before if you've been around for a while. The heavenly hosts are an army, not a choir. Okay, Biblically, they're, they're the army. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 11, there is the key. Unto you is born this day. In the city of David, which links this newborn child with all kinds of Old Testament prophecies, especially but not by any stretch limited to Isaiah 9. In the city of David, a savior... That's title number one. Who is Christ? That's title number two. The Lord. That's title number three. Is that a plane or is that? Is that what that is? That's freaking me out. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one who was hearing that. That thing was low. <laughs> Where's Greg Smith or one of our pilots? We gotta check that thing out. Um, so, all right, back on track. Under you was born to say in the city of David. That links with the Old Testament. A savior, title number one, who is Christ, title number two, the Lord, title number three. And this combination, these titles announced by an angel of the Lord, surrounded by the glory of the Lord, make unmistakably clear that this child born in Bethlehem is not only God's agent of salvation, but is in fact the Lord himself in the flesh, that's the declaration that they receive. Now that really matters. Because Israel had looked to, had placed their faith in, had been ultimately let down by failed Savior after failed Savior after failed Savior for 14, 1,500 years. Moses and Joshua had both died. There had been these regional judges that had proven inadequate and incapable of leading the nation as a whole. King Saul had once been a a shining, promising figure, but he had walked away from the Lord. King David seemed like a good possibility, but he didn't even lead his family very well and ultimately wound up kind of being the high watermark. His son, King Solomon, lost his way by the end of his life. His sons divided the kingdom, and their sons litter the Old Testament with paganism and sin and military catastrophes. The priesthood had so angered God at one point that he said, stop bringing me these sacrifices, I'm sick of them. The prophets had spoken from God, but more often than not, their words seemed to fall on deaf ears. Israel's tragic history is replete with these unfulfilled longings for a Savior, for God's anointed one, for a Messiah. And finally, he had come. In my experience, it seems to me that many of our lives too, many of the lives of our family and friends and the people around us, Are replete with unfulfilled longings for a Savior. We may not look to judges or to kings or prophets or priests to save us necessarily. But how often do we look to a spouse or to our children or to our work or to our degrees, our social networks or our online influence? to our bank or our investment or our retirement accounts, to our beauty or to our bodies, to recreation or to travel, to alcohol or to drugs, to some fresh start in a new town with a new job and new people, or to a return back to that one town where when we were there, everything was better back then. We look to any number of people and places and experiences, things to try to save us from some imagined hell. Some uh, imagined hell of loneliness or boredom, of mediocrity or irrelevance, of loss or of grief or of pain, of aging or sagging or going up a pant size. Of disappointment in or a resignation to the way that things have turned out. It's really not the way that we planned at all. And inevitably, what we find is that none of those things we look to can actually save us. Because our, the weight of our expectations, the weight of our hopes is just too heavy. The weight of our lives is just too heavy for those things, for those people, for those experiences. They can't bear it. And what we find is there is no person, there is no place, there is no experience, no thing that actually has the power and the will to save us. But friends, Jesus is able to save because he's the son of God in the flesh. The problem that Israel had, the problem that so many of us have, is not that we haven't met the right person. It's not that we haven't enjoyed the right experience. It's not that we haven't found the thing that we've been looking for that is finally going to bring us peace. It's finally going to lead us into joy. The problem is that nothing and no one on earth can. That's our challenge. Only God himself can do that. So when an angel, blindingly reflecting the glory of God the Father himself, breaks into this broken world and says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, who is Messiah, who is the Lord himself. That is the greatest possible news, because it's not just that a man named Jesus came to save, it's that Jesus, the Son of God, is able to save. So what we celebrate at Christmas, what we sing about at Christmas, and really all year long, what we sing about is not ambition, it's accomplishment, It's not a promise made, it's a promise kept. It's not the hope of something unseen. It's faith that has been made sight in the incarnation of Christ. In Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. And He, the Son of God by name, came to save and is able to save And maybe we take that for granted because we live on this side of the cross and for our entire lives and for the entire lives of everybody whose name we can even remember, that truth is something that we have known. But Israel did not take it for granted because promising figure after promising figure after promising figure had come to save and not been able to. So God says, "I'll do it myself. I got it. I'll send my son because he's able to." The third stanza of "God Rest You Merry Gentlemen" is really a repetition of the same theme that's in the first stanza, and then the fourth stanza having reflected on the truths of who Jesus is and the truths about why it is that he came, this anonymous songwriter gives us this application. He says, therefore, praise him and love one another. Praise him and love one another. The lyrics to verse four go like this. Like, in my head, I don't know y'all don't preach, but um, if you do any public speaking or anything, it's completely possible to be talking, but then in your head be thinking of something completely different, right? I don't, I'm not, don't think that's unspiritual. It's just, you know, maybe it's a little ADD. I don't know. In my head, I hear these planes, and all I think about is the opening scene of Red Dawn, right? <laughs> Where it's like, if you're old enough, not that new Red Dawn, that's horrible. Like the actual Red Dawn, you know? It's all like, I just, uh, we got these windows. If they see people parachuting, I'm going to freak out. So, um... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, you know, this is the way it is. Okay. (laughs) Um, Therefore, focus. Praise him and love one another. Okay. Lyrics to verse four go like this. Now, to the Lord sing praises, all you within this place. And with true love and brotherhood, each other now embrace. This holy tide of Christmas, this season that Christmas ushers in, all others doth deface. This is the greatest season, he says. Praise him and love one another. Isn't that just the right application of all right theology? Like, if you're studying the Bible, if you're listening to somebody preach, like, if at the end of the day there's some application that goes against love God, love your neighbor, they've missed it. Like You've... Missed it. We read earlier from Luke 2, but if you keep reading through Luke's historical account of the life of Jesus, you'll get to Luke 10, and it's this great scene where there's a lawyer, and he's asking Jesus this theological question, and he says, um, like, what is the greatest commandment? Verse 27, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right theology leads people to love God and to love their neighbors. This is what happens. If the story of the Bible is true, and at King's Cross, if you're new, if it's your first Sunday and you're a guest, we believe that every word of the Scripture is true, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written through the personalities of men as they're carried along by him. If Jesus Christ was born to save to save us from the power of Satan, if he is, in fact, the Son of God by name. Can you think of many things more worthy of praise than that? I mean, if that is true, what can you think of that is more worthy of singing the praises to God about than that? And if those things are true, then they're not just true for you. They're true for the people around you, too. That family member who said that thing at Thanksgiving that you're so upset about. There's a sinner in need of a savior. That friend that you thought would always be there and then something happened. Sinner in need of a savior. Your angry atheist neighbor. There's a sinner in need of a savior. Your coworkers and your congresspeople, your banker and your barista. Strangers on the street and the person sitting next to you right now. One and all sinners in need of a savior. And watch this. If you understand that, that levels the playing field. Because at the foot of the cross no matter what their race or gender or ethnicity or educational level or socioeconomic standing or age or family status at the foot of the cross, they are no better and no worse than you. And you are no better and no worse than them. So with true love and brotherhood, each other now embrace Allow the truth of who God is to change your heart and your mind about the way that the people around you are. And then you can, with true love that comes from him, love and embrace them. Now, I think we do this a little bit at Christmas anyway, don't we? I mean, like, for the most part, at Christmas, people smile more and hug more and go to more parties and are more generous. Like, Christmas really does, I think bring out the best in a lot of people. It just seems like people are a little happier a lot of times at Christmas. And that's good. But what if the people of God, what if for us, our love for one another, our love for our neighbors wasn't driven by the season, but by the truth of who Jesus is and why he was born 2,000 years ago in a sleepy little town called Bethlehem and what it is that he's done. Living and dying in our place, not just for us, but instead of us, paying the price for our sin on the cross, overcoming death by his resurrection, conquering Satan, disarming him and putting him to open shame. What might happen in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, if, forget the rest of Christendom in Charleston, what if just all you in this place sang praises to the Lord and embraced one another with true love and brotherhood? I think that your Christmas... And my Christmas and the Christmas of all the people around us would just be radically changed. I think our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our schools and maybe even our city would experience the season in a different way. I think we might just find that God rests us all, Mary, this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we are stunned at the enormity of the truth that you loved us enough to send your holy and perfect and eternal Son to die for us. That your plan was not changed when others called by you to serve your people failed. Your plan was not changed. When Israel failed, it is not changed now when churches fail because you yourself have shepherded your people and loved your people and redeemed your people. For those of us who are counted among your people, we sing praises to you because of it. We pray that you would shape our hearts that we might embrace one another with the type of love and fellowship that you've called us to. And for those who are not yet counted among your people, I pray that by your grace this Christmas season might be one where their eyes are opened to the truth of the gospel and where maybe for the first time they turn from sin and turn towards you in faith. Would you make it so for the glory of your name in which we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.